The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. Discover Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. guys welcome back to the tragedy of cinema podcast today we have a very special special collaboration with the evil never dies podcast um joining us tonight along with kyle that's right we have the co-host or host with the most brett stepping off from the evil never dies podcast what's up brett what's going on guys how you doing great oh, not too bad not too bad gonna be talking about some apes. 
some planning. <laughs> so I don't know, man. It's probably been what it's probably been about two months ago that uh, Brett had one of his uh, Zoom meetings set up after his podcast, and uh, I joined in there and we started talking about some stuff, and then somehow Planet of the Apes came up, and um, I said, "Hey, Brett," I said, "Why don't we do Planet of the Apes? You know, a little crossover with." Evil Never Dies and the Tragedy of Cinema. And he's like, oh, yeah, I like apes. Of course, Carl doesn't. So, Carl, too bad you're not joining us. But, yeah, what a loser. So, um, this is we're actually going to cover the entire uh, series set, whatever you want to call it, of the Planet of the Ape movies. Um, but this is only the first episode. This is the one that I started all off, uh, the Planet of the Apes. So um, I've given uh, Kyle some direction on what he's doing tonight. I gave uh, Brett some stuff that he's going to be covering. So uh, and I got some... off by the hitch, I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, it's going to go perfect. <laughs> and then I got some trivia and stuff. Then we got some. Uh, Brett's got a personal story he's going to share at the end about the original movie. So uh, got a lot of good stuff planned. So Kyle, let's go ahead and kick this off because there's a lot of information out there on the Planet of the Apes. All right. Well, I'll just I'll get right into it, Jimbo. Um, Planet of the Apes released on April third, nineteen sixty eight. Directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Um, writers were Michael Wilson and Rod Sterling of Twilight of, 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 of Twilight Zone fame for the screenplay adaptation, and Pierre Boyle, based on the for the original novel *Planet of the Apes*. Um, also wrote the um, *Bridge River Kwai*, another movie we covered here on the podcast. Cool stuff. Well, that, for the the book, anyways, that got after the movie later. Some quick little technical details of the film. Um, this movie is a runtime of one hour and fifty-two minutes. This is a color film. The aspect ratio is wide at 2.35 by 1. Budget of the film was $5.8 million, and gross worldwide was $32.6 million worldwide. Do I have for inflation for you this week, guys, but I'll kind of get it next time, okay? And country of origin, this was filmed in the United States, of course. Um, for um, international releases, it was also known as Planet de Athen. <laughs> This is awesome. That's a cool little factoid right there. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> I did. Perfect. Perfectly said. I couldn't I couldn't do better if I tried. Because I didn't. <laughs> Next up, let's move on here to the quick cast notes right here. We have the legendary Charles and Heston playing George Tyler, the astronaut. You know, Taylor. you know they uh, never say his name during this movie. They never call him George. It's always just Taylor. That's for bright eyes. Yeah, right eyes. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it makes sense. Right? Yeah. yeah, and of course, um, Charlton Heston, best known easily for these role is Ben Hur in the film Ben Hur in 1959. Um, just uh, yep, yeah, just a few years before this one. Uh, uh I think I would have to disagree because he was Moses in the Ten Commandments too, dude. That's a really big movie too. Yeah, we haven't done the Ten Commandments yet. As far as I can see, the movie doesn't exist yet. <laughs> Kyle's probably never seen the Ten Commandments. Also, easily best well known as Moses in the Ten Commandments in 1946. <laughs> <laughs> then we have he was also in the omega man as neville in in 1971 there's charlton heston for you jimbo thank you <laughs> um next up here we have roddy mcdowell playing the character of cornelius rodney mcdowell was also in the film mcdowell mcdowell, McDowell sorry. roddy roddy, roddy. mcdowell like I said, without a hitch, guys, without a hitch. I promised you. We got I'm it. just going to tell you, man, you're messing with some fans of the originals, man. You're going to do it right or you're going to do it. Tell him, You're, you're, you're going, going to get corrected. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, McDowell is also in the film Fright Night in 1985, Cleopatra in 1963, and Overboard in 1987. 
And that is Roddy McDowell, Kyle. McDowell, McDowell. <laughs> then we have Kim Hunter playing the character of Zira. Zira was also in the films. Uh, uh, well, Kim Kim Hunter was also in the film. Um, a streetcar named Desire in 1951 playing the character of Stella. And she was also in the preceding Planet of the Apes sequels in um, Beneath Planet of the Apes in 1970 and Escape from Planet of the Apes in 1971. So we'll get to those um, next uh, next show. Good time there. Then we have Morris Evans playing Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I love that Simpsons parody. Um, please don't. <laughs> what? I said, please don't sing that. <laughs> I love it. Okay, fine. Um <laughs> Maurice Evans was also in the films Rosemary's Baby in 1968, The Jerk in 1979, and he returned in the sequels of the movie. Um, returned, I think it was in the third movie he returned in, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, or there's a sequel, um, 1970, 1970. There, so other films he appeared in as well. Then we have James Whitmore playing President of the Assembly. James Whitmore was also in the films The Shawshank Redemption in 1994. Give him hell, Harry, in 1975, Battleground in 1949, and The Asphalt Jungle in 1950. Next up, we have James Daly playing the character of Honoris. Oh, I believe he was actually playing a judge in that, in that um, one scene he was in, but for the cast, he actually listed him as Honoris. I don't think that's actually his name, his character. James Daly was also in the films The Young Stranger in 1957, The Big Bounce in 1969, and Eagle in a Cage in 1965. Then we have Linda Harrison playing the character of Nova, the lovely Nova. Linda Harrison was also in the films Cocoon in 1985, and she was in the remake of Planet of the Apes as Woman in a Cart <laughs> in 2001. <laughs> and she uh, also returned in the sequel Beneath Planet of the Apes in 1970. Just love that cast note. <laughs> We're going to bring you back for a little walk-on role. Like, oh, really? I'm not playing. Woman in Cart. <laughs> So classy, so classy. Would that be oh, a wow. roll-on and not a walk-on? Oh! <laughs> Next up, we have Robert Gunner playing the character of Landon. Robert Gunner was also in the films The Green... Oh, he was in the Green Hornet television series for one episode as Detective. Um, he was in the film Jackals in 1967. And he was in the Frontier Circus Show for one episode playing the character of Harry. So his best known for actor roles go from IMDb page, and he was. IMDb page, and there we go. Tongue twisters right there. Not really a tongue twister. I'm just bad at pronouncing things. Next up, we have Lou Wagner playing the character of Lucius. Lou Wagner is also known for playing the character of um, De Demon Solik in the Star Trek Next Generation television series. He was in the film Airport in 1970. And he returned in the sequels for Planet of the Apes and Conquest of Planet of the Apes in 1972, playing the character of Busboy. <laughs> was he pushing... Push a woman in cart. <laughs> push a woman in cart, exactly. Bus boy, push a woman in cart. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it all ties together in the Planet of the Apes cinematic universe. <laughs> Next up, we have Woodrow Parfi playing the character of Maximus. Very gallantry name here. Gallantry. And then, yeah, Maximus. Um, let's hear. Woodrow Parfait. 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 Woodrow Parfait. Yeah, you know, I'm going to own it. Um, he was in the film Dr. Dirty Harry in 1971. The Outlaw Josie Wales in 1936. Papillion in 1973, and that's for a hit for the movies on there. I got a text message that could be important. I have to check that in a moment. Oh, gosh. And next up, we have Jeff Burton playing the character of Dodge. Jeff Burton was also in the films Street Sisters in 1974, Coffee in 1973, and Get in 1965. 
Street Street Sisters and Coffee looks like some amazing black exploitation films that I desperately need to check out sometime. But uh, wow, that's the those are some titles. He was also in the um, the um, the original uh, Batman uh, live action series with uh, uh, uh no that was his name the original Batman uh, Adam West Adam West he was in the Adam West Batman series for one episode I think who did he play Oh, I'd look it up again uh, real quick. You know, one sec. This is my suspense music. Ezra, what was character we play? Batman. Man in window. Man in window. Real classy role. Um, oh, he played the character of Shamrock. And was her Batman villain, Shamrock. There's one picture of him in a on a giant um, green onesie. It looks good. Good for him. Good for you, Jeff Burton. <laughs> you amazing man. Um, next up, we have Buck Cartalian uh, playing the character of Julius. Buck was also in the shows and movies. Um, he was in The Rock in 1996, um, playing the character of the Reverend. He was also in Cool Hand Luke in 1967, playing the character of Dynamite. And he returned in one of the sequels of Planet of the Apes for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes in 1972, playing the character of Frank. Good on him. Next up, we have Norman Burton playing the hunt leader you see in the early film, the first um, like ape you really see, Norman Burton. Norman Burton was also in the films um, Diamonds Are Forever in 1971, The Towering Inferno in 1974, and Bloodsport in 1988. I love that movie. Excellent movie. Bloodsport. I haven't seen it in forever. <laughs> I gotta get, get back and watch that one. So many movies I gotta get back and watch. Too many. Next up, we have Wright King playing the character of Dr. Galen. Wright King was also in the productions of The Twilight Zone for two episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, he played um, uh, character Hecate and character Paul Carson for two episodes. I'm guessing those obviously separate characters for Twilight Zone, obviously. He was also in an episode of the show McCloud in 1975. And he was also in the film A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951, playing a generic role of the character A Collector. Next hey, up. A Collector, a woman in a cart, and a busboy all walk into a bar. All these actors had huge careers at this movie. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> and finally, we have Paul Lambert playing the character of the minister. You see for, I believe, just like one or two scenes in the film. Paul Lambert was also in the films um, Spartacus in 1960, All of the President's Men in 1976. And he was an episode, also an episode of Twilight Zone in 1960 playing the character of the Doctor. All right. And that is the cast of Planet of the Apes. Moving on here, we'll kick it over back. To you, and I think we're gonna move on to the synopsis and the awards. Want to take it over me? That's Brett. Oh, Brett. Sorry, Brett. <laughs> Brett. I, I said you, didn't I? Brett. Yeah, you okay, said you. Yeah, I was like, synopsis. you forget Brett said right there, and he's doing Awkward a crap job. All, all right, all right, all right. We're going over the plot then. Fall asleep. Right. <laughs> well, no, no. Let's go over the awards first. Let's see. Let's go over the awards of... first. Is there okay. a lot of awards? I'm sure it probably had. A... Yeah, there's, there's a few. There's a few. All right, uh, Academy Awards, United States. Winner John Chambers for his outstanding makeup achievement in the movie. In the movie, and this is for the uh, Academy Awards for 1969, and it was nominated for Best Costume Design, Morton Hack, uh, Best Music Original Score for a Motion Picture Not a Musical, Jerry Goldsmith, and then 2009, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films was nominated for uh, Best DVD Collection for the five original movies as a part of the 40th Anniversary Collection, which I think I got on DVD, actually. 
1996 Genesis Awards. It won feature film for classic films. Jules Verne Awards for 2008. Winner, Jules Verne Legendaire Award, Franklin J. Schaffner. Schaffner. The Laurel Awards from 1968. It was nominated for the Golden Laurel for Best Action Drama Movie. National Board of Review USA, 1969. It won for the top 10 films. National Film Preservation Board, United States, 2001. Winner, National Film Registry. So it's actually in the National Film Registry. It'll be there forever and ever. Uh, Online Film and Television Association, 2020. Winner of the QFTA Film Hall of Fame for Best Motion Picture. And that's it for the uh, awards. Excellent. And for a quick synopsis of the film, what do you have? Quick synopsis. uh, Four astronauts. uh, They uh, (laughs) crash land on a planet 2006 years after their original departure from Earth in 1972. And they crash land and travel through the desert wasteland until they find uh, some human-like creatures, I guess you would call them. And they were mute and couldn't talk. Well, I guess that's what mute means, right? They can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It tracks, yeah. <laughs> so uh, then they get attacked by apes that are riding horses and shooting guns at them. I thought that was the coolest thing, dude, when the apes are on the horses, dude, right? (laughs) Nothing better than an ape riding a horse. It's great. Cinematic archery. (laughs) So after that, the, uh, the main character, Taylor, played by Charlton Heston, uh, land, the Landon has the, other guy and dodge the third astronaut uh they both get well the dodge gets killed during the hunt yeah during the hunt and landon gets uh captured Mm -hmm. and so does taylor and he also gets shot in the throat so he loses his speech with the land and they end up doing a lobotomy on him and because he was talking i guess that's the guest you get from it yeah i think dr zayas i think that's why he came into there and wanted to see how uh charlton has or taylor was doing because i think uh landon had been talking and he gave him that lobotomy he's like i can't let this out you know what i mean so he's Mm -hmm. like let me see what this one does defender of the faith all right so taylor he's actually befriended by two chimpanzee doctors uh dr zira and uh dr cornelius and they end up helping him escape from the ape city to try to find uh, a better place to go where there where the apes won't go, which is called the uh, Forbidden Zone. The Forbidden, Forbidden Zone. Yeah, 
Very convenient. Part of the customers for apes would never go. Oh, you mean well, I don't know. Go? I don't. I don't know that the apes wouldn't go there. I think they've been forbidden to go there, and probably by Doctor Zayas because of the archaeological dig that Cornelius had done. Because there's stuff out there that he doesn't want the other apes to know. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I think sorry. I think yeah. the for, forbidden zone, you know, they've got those uh, X's up all along the cliffs and all that. I think, you know, it says, hey, don't go past this point because he knows there's stuff out there that would basically destroy their a lot, of, a lot of a lot of the stuff that he's been telling them is probably a lie. You know, what I mean, like we were here first, you know what yeah, I mean? It, so, it, the stuff that they would find would prove that humans were there before the apes. Right. So so then uh taylor and nova are riding off on a horse down the beach and they come up to a destroyed uh what is it the statue uh, of liberty statue baby. of liberty stuck in the sand and that's when uh Dang. taylor oh, taylor well, realizes that there we was made it back <laughs> you made we it back back, back on earth <laughs> he was back on Earth, and uh, that there's probably more than likely a nuclear war that happened. Right. Now, let me ask you a question. You said four astronauts. Uh, we did have Stuart, the lady, yeah. at the beginning. Um, she was dead when the crash happened. Right. So did, I remember him saying, why did they say that she didn't lock it all the way or shut it all the way? Is that why the race kind of early? Well, the glass her. is broken on it. The grass, the glass on her, on their on the cover was broke but so, was it broke before he laid down no it, uh, something must have happened while they were in flight i think yeah i mean i don't think it ever really says it's just he just says the radiation must have got to her and you know what i mean and then they just you know they they go to look at her and she's like that old uh basically it is an 80 83 year old lady playing that part of the the mummy or whatever and, and when she comes back up so um, they said like she's like the first eighty something year old astronaut in space or something in movies or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you ready to start talking about some fun trivia, Brett? And you guys jump in anytime you want. If you got questions, comments, uh, we can go from there. So fantastic. All right. There's a lot of this stuff. So I'm sure. So uh basically during the breaks in the filming, um, the actors of the different ape species, because you had chimpanzees, you had what orangutans, and you had uh what's the other one? Uh, gorillas. gorillas they basically they would sit together in groups <laughs> they didn't tell them to but they would sit together in groups and eat their lunch together it's fantastic <laughs> it's like wow absolutely uh, gotta get in that gang mentality immediately gorillas stick together <laughs> um allegedly jerry goldsmith who did the musical score wore a gorilla mask while writing and conducting the score to get better in touch with the movie he also oh. used a ram's horn in the process the result was the first completely atonal score in a hollywood movie when adjusted for inflation, the movie holds the world record for the highest makeup budget, then $345,542, which represented about 17% of the total budget of $2 million. I bet the makeup was great in it. Right. And if you get a for chance that, to watch for that it. Time of, for that time, in, in that time era. Oh, and it holds up incredibly well today. Oh, it, it does. does. It's amazing makeup work. Really, truly. And while I'm thinking about that. Um, there's a, uh, several documentaries you can watch on Planet of the Apes that are really well, but there's one where Roddy McDowell actually has a home camera and he's sitting in the chair and you're, you're watching him get the makeup up. and just, and that thing was 20 minutes long. I mean, Kyle watched it. It's, it's kind of boring, but to see him, what all he had to go through, it's pretty amazing. And we'll get to some more of the stuff here later, but I have a question. He did, I think he actually about, did that on every movie he made. I know. 
And speaking of that, uh, Brett, you probably remember this. I know Kyle won't because he probably wasn't born yet. But do you remember that TV show, Tales of the Gold Monkey, that he was in? About the the airplane that would land in the water. I can't remember a lot about it, but I remember I I used to love it when I was a kid. It had the one-eyed dog with the patch named Jack or something. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I, I vaguely remember that. Yes. Um, but I have a question that I don't, I didn't see it in my notes and I thought maybe you guys might know, um, the, uh, the helper, I don't think he's their son of Cornelius Azira. was his name. Um, he was the nephew. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, um, looking up right now. Galen. I believe it was. I think you're right. Uh, uh, I know that was Dr. Dr. Galen was right. King's character. Yeah, like, be further down deep in the cast. I'm gonna take a look real quick. I thought it was with the L. It's not Landon, but it, or is it something? Lucius, Lucius, I think. Yeah, I Lucius, think. Lou Wagner's character. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice that? I you could really notice it at the end, but he always walked with like a limp. Did they ever explain why, or was or was he? Did he have something wrong with him physically in real life that made him limp around like that? Does anybody know? I don't know because a lot of them limped like that, though. Yeah, but his was like really, really noticeable. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you go back and watch it, like especially at the end when he's in charge of keeping off the uh, monkeys from attacking the archaeological site, you can tell real bad because he's just like really dragging that foot and everything. I didn't know if maybe he got hurt or something, or I didn't. I don't. I don't remember hearing about it in the movie. I just didn't know if you guys caught that. I'm um, looking at his trivia right now. Um... All it says here is that due to his short stature, he was an adult at the time of filming. At uh, well, he was actually uh, what's your nineteen sixty eight? So yeah, he was twenty at the time of filming. Um, and uh, oh, okay, so he's just a short man at five two. It's possibly possibly had him on like stilts and like that when he was walking to some degree. That could be it. But it said due to his short stature at five two, he often played characters much younger than his actual age, and that's why he plays the child character in this film specifically. So that's all I have on Lou Wagner. So right he's there. the Kyle of the podcast. <laughs> I'm not that short. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, young wise. Young oh, wise. no, young wise. <laughs> I'm not small. Uh, all right, moving on. Moving on. Uh, Charlton Heston was actually sick during much of this film with the flu. Rather than wait for him to get better, the producers felt that his hoarse voice added something to the character of Taylor. According to Heston's diary, which I'm going to have to find a copy of that and read it. After filming the scene where Taylor and Nova are forcibly separated, he wrote that he was feeling really bad and while shooting uh, because of his illness and that it even got felt start feeling worse when he, that hose hit him every single time. You know, the fire hose like because I'm sure the things are I remember I'm, I know because I remember when Rambo got it, he was crying oh, yeah. too or whatever. So. Yeah. And I'm sure it's kind of lucky that he had a character who only had, had you know, used his voice for only half the film, really, or even like, a you know, well, not only that, but, you know, you're watching that film and he's running around there barefoot the entire movie. You know, I mean, there's the part where they got him in in a loincloth. Yeah. And they got him in that net and they're dragging him. I was trying to see if there was like a metal plate or something he set on as they're scooting him on the floor. Because if not, dude, that was that looked like it hurt. Dragging him on dirt. I'm sure it sucked. Yeah. Um, John Chambers, outstanding makeup effects pioneered in the film were based on a technique he had used during World War Two to give disfigured veterans a normal appearance. How awesome is that? Uh, Chambers spent many hours watching the apes at the Los Angeles Zoo, studying their facial expressions. Several other productions were delayed because many of Hollywood's top makeup artists were working on this film. Leftover makeup supplies were later used on Michael Conrad playing an ape-like alien in Fugitives in Space. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science gave Chambers an honorary award for makeup which was not an Oscar category until 1981 for this achievement. 
And the second time that a makeup artist received an Academy Award was William Tuttle was the first for The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, which my dad wants us to cover on the podcast, so I'm sure we will sometime. Uh, Chambers Award was presented by Walter Matthau and a chimpanzee in a tuxedo. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what year was that? Um, uh, let's see here. I don't know. Whenever he won it. Uh, let's see. I probably think it was in 69, probably. Well, uh, this is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science gave him the honorary award for makeup for this achievement, but it, it didn't become an official thing until 1981, so it had to be between this movie came out in 81, so... Yeah, it came out in 68, so probably 69 or 70, probably. You probably look it up. Kyle might put it on Facebook if we can find the uh, chimpanzee and Walter Matthau on YouTube or something. If I'll find it, I'll share it at time release. Yeah, yeah. the uh, makeup the makeup bars uh, team consisted of over 80 makeup artists, which is... Un- un- Believe That's it. not surprising. All the amount of people he had to put makeup in. Just imagine how crazy that would have been. And like, if you're an actor in the '60s trying to get work, it's like, oh, this movie's legs. You can't have any makeup artists. They're too busy trying to make people look like apes. And you're like, what is going on in this place? They're trying to make everyone apes. Like, we well, used to make movies. There, there was just so many <laughs> extras that they had to do up and makeup too. Yeah, but we got. I got it in my notes somewhere. A lot of those just got like a, a sack cloth over their head or something, so they didn't have to spend much time. I've got it in here somewhere. Uh, one of the biggest stumbling blocks preventing 20th Century Fox from committing to the project was its fear of over how the apes' faces would look on screen. Eventually, they coughed up $5,000 for a testing to be shot with Charlton Heston playing alongside the made-up Edward G. Robinson as Dr. Zayas and James Brolin as a character called Mr. Cornelius. The studio was very excited about the results of this test but still delayed greenlighting this film for a further six months away. It was only after Fantastic Voyage became a hit and showed the viability of science fiction as a genre that Planet of the Apes was given the go-ahead, but without Robinson, as he suffered from a weak heart and he didn't think he could endure the day-to-day rigors of performing in the ape makeup. I understand that. It certainly had to be an ordeal when doing that makeup. I remember like um, like Jim Carrey and the Grinch had to get like a CIA uh, instructor to teach him how to endure torture, endure torture just to get the makeup on him every single day and all that kind of stuff. And I bet the eight milk, it wasn't that much better. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, we'll get to it. Uh, the fourth astronaut, Stuart, was actually originally uh, written as a man instead of a woman. Um, in the original script, the female native humans were all bare-breasted. This idea was quashed and squashed by Fox to appease censors. Oh, here you go. This is this is a really cool fact that I like. Two nine-foot statues of the lawgiver were made. The original used in the first, second, and fifth films ended up in Arthur P. Jacobs' backyard as the sole prop he kept from the movie. The other was given to none other than Sammy Davis Jr. by Jacobs and was kept by him for many, many years. Jacobs kept the original lawgiver statue in his backyard until his early and untimely death in 1973 at only the age of 51. His widow, Natalie Trundy Jacobs, kept the statue in her backyard uh, even as she moved residences. Several movie stars and celebrities can be found in photo archives standing next to the lawgiver statue, including Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Kim Hunter, Andy Warhol, and a pregnant Natalie Wood. In December of 1998, Natalie Trundy uh, Jacobs sold the original lawgiver statue through an online auction hosted by The Time Machine, a web-based memorabilia retailer dealing in photos and celebrity autographs. The winning bidder was an avid Planet of the Apes collector. Ed Gogan of Orange County, California, who outbid, he outbid 20th Century Fox 
which yeah. one of the lawgiver statue for its archives and marketing purposes. He outbid a studio, dude. Wow. He outbid a studio. I mean, you're serious. You're serious. That's crazy. In December of 2010, Gogan was featured in Joe's Judgment Day with his other ape, uh, apes and memorabilia. The copy of the Sammy Davis uh, lawgiver statue was sold at his IRS estate auction for the singer's unpaid back taxes to a Hollywood actor and friend of Roddy McDowell. This lawgiver statue was featured in the 1998 AMC documentary Behind the Planet of the Apes as part of AMC's 30-year anniversary campaign, Apes Goes Classic. I, I just couldn't get over the fact that the guy outbid 20th Century Fox. Now, it could be the other way around with 20th Century Fox. Like, look, we ain't paying that much for it anyway. So yeah. they could have went cheap, you know what I mean? And he was just like, well, I'm, I'm going to take it. Because they probably thought they could get it and, you know, give it back to us. Or yeah. they had a budget that they had to stick by. Yeah, a budget. <laughs> uh, there are no female gorillas or orangutans in this film. The only ones you see are, I believe, it's uh, the lady walking or uh, the chimpanzees females. Uh, the spaceship the astronauts crash land in was reused in the Illustrated Man, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and the short-lived TV series Planet of the Apes. Brett, did you ever watch the TV series? Yes, I did. I'm trying to remember. I don't know if I ever saw it. Was it good? It was, it was It was 74 and 75, I think, when it came out. I think there was only two seasons of it. Was it good? Yeah, it wasn't bad. They still have all the same makeup and all that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to try to find those. Yeah. Uh, the water pool where the astronauts enjoy a swim was built on the Fox Ranch by producer Arthur P. Jacobs for his adaptation of Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> and to me, this is one of the funniest parts of the movie, too. The see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil gag. <laughs> if you remember when he's on trial, one ape's going like this, one ape's covering his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I caught that right away. I was entirely oh, yeah. ad-libbed on the set the day of shooting. <laughs> it was kept in because people found it amusing when the film was starting to uh, get way too serious in nature. Uh, the apes don't make their first appearance until 30 minutes into the film. So if mm -hmm. you want to see Taylor and the other astronauts walking around the planet, which it's kind of funny if you think about, because I believe it's uh, Landon when the, he, cause Heston's always riding him about stuff, you know what I mean? But you, you, there's that part where he looks back and he's actually planted the American flag on the yeah. little soil he built where they're already in America or they're still in, you know, earth. I thought that was funny. It's a pretty cool foretelling of the, 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 the events that are about to happen. Um, all the ape actors and extras were required to wear their masks even during breaks and in between shots because it took so much time to make, make them up. Because of this, mills were liquefied and drunk through straws. Oh, gosh. Yeah, they, they, they showed them all. They had uh, a lot of them smoked cigarettes and they had them cigarette holder yeah, thing holder things up. If you watch that Roddy McDowell, uh, footage it shows dr zayas with one of them he's smoking he, he looks at the camera and blows it uh roddy mcdowell an experienced actor recommended to his companions in makeup that they should frequently add ticks blinks and assorted facial gestures to add a sense of realism and keep the makeup from appearing mask like mcdowell reported uh reportedly became a merry prankster with the makeup driving home with his makeup on and shocking some of the other drivers on the freeway while doing the play <laughs> of the apes television series roddy surprised none other than carol burnett when he showed up on the family uh, slash bus stop slash brief encounter in full gallon makeup while she was taping her intro talking to the audience. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Good work. Uh, all. Brett, let's see if Brett knows. Brett, what is this movie's most famous line? And it was voted number 66 uh, movie quote in 2005 by the American Film Institute out of 100. That's Get awesome. your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> I knew he would know. <laughs> 
And, and you know, I, he says that, man, and all the monkeys are like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the rifles used by the apes were visually modified American M1 semi-automatic carbines in uh, 30 caliber, uh, primarily used during World War II. The M1s used in the film were housed in a wood case that disguised the barrel as well as the magazine. Yeah, they were cool looking, too. Yeah, they were. Uh, turning oh. down the part of Zero was one of Ingrid Bergman's greatest regrets. Much surprised as how well the finished film turned out, she later confided to her daughter, Isabella Rossellini, that in hindsight, the film would have been an ideal opportunity for her to disregard her regal bearing. She also regretted missing the opportunity of working with Charlton Heston. Uh, this con- film contains Charlton Heston's first nude scene. Uh, anybody wants to see other ones? I don't know any other ones he did, but I mean- he showed his behind. <laughs> I, I'm always in pursuit of new Charles and Hesitant. And it's still got a PG 13 or whatever it was. No, I think it got a G. It got a G rating. G rating? Okay. Yeah, this is one of only two or three G movies that had nudity. Uh, I'd say yeah, this somewhere. was before the this was before the PG 13 rating because that was with the um, Gremlins, I think, in 1980s too. No, I believe it was uh, Temple of Doom. I thought it was Gremlins. Okay, let me take a look. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll guess from you. You're on it. Uh, director Franklin J. Schaefer just deliberately used odd, skewed angles and head-held cameras to create a disorienting effect, much like what Charlton Heston's character experienced in The Brave New World, which it did a really good job, man, because sometimes it would be upside down or, you know, especially when he's running through and the camera's, like, turning this way and that way. I was kind of getting sick. If you have motion sickness, it's terrible. Uh, Charlton Heston was always producer Arthur P. Jacobs' <laughs> first choice to play the part of Taylor, but considered as a backup possibility was none other than Marlon Brando. Which I don't know if I would have liked him in it. Jimbo, it turns out we're both wrong. On August 10th, 1984, the action thriller Red Dawn, starring Patrick Swayze, opened in theaters as the first movie to release with the PG-13 rating. But the reasons it was made was because of Steven Spielberg with the um, um, release of Gremlins and the um, Indiana Jones film was the reason. <laughs> They needed a rating like this. We're both kind of right. The first implementation was the PG was Red Dawn. That's cool. All right. There's something new every day. Both wrong, both right. (laughs) So in order to make sure that the the, uh, reporters would write about this film, producer Arthur P. Jacobs enlisted several journalists to play background apes. So, you know, (laughs) what better way to gather uh, excitement for your film? Hey, I'm in this film. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. It gets the writers excited for sure. Like, oh, yeah. I'm in it. Did you know, Brett, that the spaceship inscribed with the acronym ANSA rather than NASA? The meaning of this inside joke is uncertain. The ship itself has been named by fans as the USS Icarus after Greek mythology's ill-fated flight pioneer. But later on in the notes, I found where they actually came out and said what the name of the ship is. We'll get to it. Did you know Assuming- the ship was made out of pl- or made out of cardboard? <laughs> and they had a they had a heck of a time when it was sinking. They had to hurry up and shoot before it sank out because it was sinking too fast. Yeah. Oh, uh, filming lasted for filming lasted from May 22nd to early August 1967. Due to the stifling summer heat, all four sequels were wisely shot during the winter months. Uh, during the hunt scene, an unclothed Tony Epler, Charlton Heston stunt double, had to run through poison oak undergrowth of Fox Century's ranch. Oh, no. That's the last place you want poison oak. <laughs> and they're done that. <laughs> what, running naked through California or poison oak? That too, maybe. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> the rite of passage. <laughs> uh, there were three other endings suggested for the first uh, first film's climax, but the uh, this one was favored by Charlton Heston and actually ultimately won out for the final 
release of the movie. In the scene at the Ape City Natural History Museum, a large claw of a strange animal can be seen prominently displayed several times on a pedestal at the top of the stairs. Some have thought that this was the plaster cast made of the foot of the monster that attacks the spaceship in Forbidden Planet. Hmm. However, if you compare the two films, the sculptors are actually very different. So I didn't really pay that close attention. Was it a monkey paw? Uh, I don't know. It should have been. Hey, you know what? Do you do you think that when uh, Zira cleans and Cornelius sits in and he says, "Hey, that monkey shines." Knee slapper, Jimbo. Thank you, thank you. Uh, the first director uh, to spot the potential in Pierre Boulez's novel was Blake Edwards. He brought on board leading sci-fi writer Rod Serling, who produced nearly forty drafts of the screenplay. While Sterling was able to come to grips with the structure, he gave full credit to Michael G. Wilson for the final screenplay. Kim Hunter reportedly found the facial ape prosthetics so claustrophobic that she took a Valium each morning while being made up as Zira. <laughs> After a while, she didn't think she needed the pills anymore and went one day without taking one. After the morning's makeup session, she thought she did fine, but her makeup artist threatened to find someone to replace him if she didn't start taking them again, as apparently he became exhausted from wrestling with her the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, and yeah, I guess it would take like it would take like three to four hours to put that stuff on them. Well, some of them took six hours, like the yeah. chimpanzees. Uh, it's in here. Imagine somewhere. like sitting there for six hours and you'd be like, "Okay, now we're gonna work to work the day." Actually, now <laughs> work eight hours after I make them on. Just, yeah, oh, miserable day. Yeah, well, miserable. sometimes they would get makeup, but they wouldn't even use them that day. You know what I mean? Like, just yeah, because now they're done. It's already night, <laughs> right? Uh, Ingrid, another thing about Ingrid Bergman is regretting turning around the part of Zira. She would have loved to have done it because it would have given her the opportunity to act without relying on her beauty. So I thought, man, that would have been cool to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it was tough to shoot for all uh, concerned in the Arizona heat, not just for the actors in the ape makeup, but also for Charlton Heston, who spent most of the film half naked, being brutalized by the elements and the apes. As Heston noted in his autobiography, even rubber rocks hurt. <laughs> Yeah, and he was pretty um, sunburned throughout the whole thing, too. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he was sunburned. He had the flu. He was just not having a good time. Uh, producer Arthur P. Jacobs bought the rights to the book, uh, the novel, before it was even published. Uh, some of the discordant musical sounds were created by using stainless steel kitchen mixing bowls. Hmm. Impressive. Uh, yeah. So, we already talked about that uh kim hunter also you know the whole drinking through straws smoking with the things she found the whole experience so laborious that she eventually gave up eating when in full makeup so she's like i'm not even going to eat he's not even bothered yeah such a pain just a pain and hassle jeez uh pierre boulet reportedly thought the novel was his own worst uh the opening scene of uh the space rocket was actually the very last scene to be filmed because heston has shaved off his beard towards the climax of the film remember the like what do you do to your hair, <laughs> your face? And he's like, on my planet, we shave. Uh, the heat in the desert scene at the opening of the film proved so intense that many of the cast and crew fainted, including the director, Franklin Schaefer. Uh, the producers considered Ursula Andrus. Let's see if you guys think they could have played Nova. Ursula Andrus, yes or no? Mm, she would have been too too hot. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's like, I don't even know know who she is. Okay, what about uh, this? Probably Kyle don't know this. Raquel Welch. Mm. (laughs) Too Too hot hot again, Brett? (laughs) Oh, not hot enough. 
That's what they need to make it for. You know, it's hotter with the ape costume. <laughs> and here's somebody, I'm not even sure who this is, but Angelique Petty John. Do you know who that is? Have no clue. Neither. Andrus and Welch were uninterested. uninterested. Petty John had auditioned, even tried on costumes, but the role ultimately went to Linda Harrison, who was producer Richard D. Zenick's mistress at the time. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, everyone had him back then, I guess. Yeah. But they had to make sure they interviewed everybody. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you uh, have a role, but we have to do more work here. <laughs> at one of the first test screenings, a woman walked up to Charlton Hess and asked how he was doing. Hesson had no clue who she was until she revealed that she was Kim Hunter, Zira. He did not recognize her because he had not previously seen her without eight makeup on. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. He's like, who are you? <laughs> oh, I just co-starred with you in this movie. <laughs> oh, here you go. Rock Hudson was considered for the role of Cornelius. It was initially decided that he was too big a star and that Charlton Heston might be overshadowed. It was also decided that the chimpanzees and ringtones should all be played by short actors. Uh, Julie Harris was offered the role of Zira. While she liked the concept, she didn't think she could work with the makeup and turned it down. Oh, here you go. Here's some people that were going to, uh, in consideration for Dr. Zayas. Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner? Maybe. I that could, could that. I can see it. I could see it. But what, he was kind of tall, wasn't he? Um... Not really, no, I don't think so. Well, I think that would take me work for Dr. Zayas being the tallest one of them all. What about uh, Jose Ferrer? I'm not sure who that is. No idea who that is. There you go. Yeah. Nah. Alec Guinness. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. He he was a great actor back in the day. He was. Uh, Edmund O'Brien. I don't know who that is. Lawrence Olivier. Nah. Peter Ustinov and Orson Welles. Oh, Orson Welles. Maybe, yeah. I could see yeah. that. I can see that. Yeah, totally. And uh, Jonathan Harris turned down the role of Dr. Maximus. Uh, Sterling, Rod Sterling admitted that he spent well over a year and 30 or 40 drafts trying to translate the novel to the screen. A year. Man. Yeah, he, he was a writer, wasn't he? Oh yeah, he wrote all uh, kinds. Wrote a lot of, of them, Twilight Zones and everything, created all that. That he did night galleries and all that stuff, dude. Yep, he was a. I would have loved to have met him. Met him, dude. I think I he would have been cool dude to meet. Uh, the space that book sometimes because that 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 the actual book itself is probably like a lot longer, more more dense. Like I'm sure it was a tough book to adapt to a film. For sure, it's probably just a comic <laughs> book. It's probably a comic book with "Hey, we crashed." Hey, here's the Hey, we oh, crashed. <laughs> like my version of the plot. quick and to the point Uh, the spacecraft on screen is never actually named in the film but for the 40th anniversary release which I do believe that uh, Brett said he has of the Blu-ray edition of the film and the short film created for the release called a public service announcement from ANSA the ship is called Liberty One the ship had originally been called Immigrant One in an early draft of the script and then called Air Force One in a test set of Topps collectible cards and even dubbed Icarus by a fan who caught on to some uh, caught on, on some fan sites. So Liberty One is actually the name of the ship. Hmm. Uh, it's one of only two G-rated movies to feature nudity, the other being The Bible in the Beginning. Uh, George Taylor attended Jefferson Public uh, School in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Kyle, he's a Hoosier. He's a Hoosier. Uh, the Icarus where was lost from fort. Huh? When Dr. Zayas is questioning, he's like, Where is this fort? Yeah, he's like, Who is this fort? 
Uh, the Icarus was launched from Cape Kennedy in Florida on January 15, 1972. And you know, Brett, that's kind of funny because I wonder if they had any um, confrontations. Maybe Zayas remembers confrontations from long ago. You know what I mean? Well, that's why he thought the fort meant like a secure stronghold or something. Maybe. Uh, although he is second build, Roddy McDowell, who plays Cornelius, does not appear until 43 minutes into the film. Wow. And yeah, I gotta yeah, like have waypoint. And I got I gotta put this in here, dude. You know, you know what the first word spoken by the uh monkeys is? What is the first word spoken by the monkeys? Jimbo Tommy. Ain't, ain't it where he says smile or cheese or whatever? The monkey takes the picture of the guys. Oh yeah. Well, oh, which oh, is yeah. funny because they got the humans there and they're standing there posing with it like you see a lot of them old black and white pictures of the mm-hmm. hunters. I thought it was funny. I just cracked up. Uh Roddy McDowell, Cornelius uh, previously played Sam Conrad and people are like all over, which like the initial drafts of this film was written by Rod Sterling. Conrad is an astronaut who crashes on Mars and is taken in by some human-like aliens to what appears to be a resort, but really is a zoo for humans. And there is a Twilight Zone episode just like that. Um, matter of fact, that is the Twilight Zone episode. Okay. Uh, I think we covered that in season one, yeah. Um, this was released the day before the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, during the crash sequence at the beginning, the two very recognizable sound effects are heard. Do you know what they are? Either what one. The what now? What was that? What are the sound of the two sound effects as the it's being as the rocket is crashing at the beginning? Do you know what the two sound effects are that you hear? Oh, uh, I can't remember now. I used to know this. I can't. What, the first is the rocket-like sound of the Batmobile starting up from the television series Batman. The second is the roaring whine of the engines of the Jupiter 2 from the original television series Lost in Space. Oh, okay. Yeah, I watched it again today, and that's pretty obviously when you watch it again. Uh, Planet of the Apes was one of, the, uh, was one of several projects where Charlton Heston took a role originally offered uh, to Burt Lancaster. Lancaster had been considered for Moses in the Ten Commandments and was the first actor to be offered the role of Ben-Hur, which he famously rejected because of, of his atheistic beliefs. As early as 1961, he was announced as Michelangelo in The Agony and the Ecstasy. It would be four years before it would be made without him. And six months before Khartoum went into production, Lancaster was still being touted to play uh, as playing General Gordon. Uh, and, yeah, Brett already covered that in his awards. Uh, an uncredited Erlen Mary Botelho plays both Dr. Gaylord's assistant and Quintus's mother. She has one line as the former, yes, sir, and uh, one as a letter, come on, Quintus. As such, she is the only woman other than uh, Zira to have a speaking role in the film. She also supplied the screams of all the female apes who were frightened by Taylor's appearance when he's running around and he runs into someone. The initial escape scene. Cool. Yeah. Uh, this is the only apes movie from the original series to feature an actor's name above the titles. So... You know, know, that's something that always bugged me. You know, we've been doing this podcast for almost four years now. And when an actor thinks that his name should be first or second, you know what I mean? As top title. Yeah. Yeah. Or above the title. It just drives me crazy. But I guess John Carpenter did it with almost all of his movies. You know, like John Carpenter's thing. When a director does it, it's one thing. When an actor does it. That's what I'm saying. It's totally messed up. Uh, it's like their egos or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's all ego play. Then when you're a director, yeah. that is kind of like that is the Artur theory of like he. Well, there's so, there's sometimes they do that, and the person doesn't even show up in the movie till like it's almost over. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, exactly. you know, there's a exactly. main star. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's well, the only thing. You know, like, probably had it where he wanted it in, the, in his contract that way. You know? Yeah. 
feel like if it was Mark Hamill's The Force Awakens, where he appears to that one last scene in the movie. <laughs> <It'd be> amazing <laughs> they did that. On the set, it became a regular event for actors and their aim makeups to be given a banana as part of their lunch. Kim Hunter grew rather tired of this prank in particular, which was the uh, uh, sort of an inside joke in the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. So I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, the space uh, ship's splashdown was shot on the Colorado River at a site called Crossing of the Fathers. Uh, to work in the desolate location, the crew had to carry their equipment in by foot or mule a team. They helicoptered a lot of stuff in, too. Yeah, they had to helicopter the actors because when they were in their makeup, they didn't want a bunch of monkeys driving down the interstate in L.A. or whatever, so they actually flew them in. <laughs> um, here you go. Early attempts at the makeup took as long as six hours to apply at once. And once they uh, was applied, it stiffened on the actor's faces so that it was impossible to move their features or expression uh, or express emotion. Other materials were developed, which allowed facial movement and allowed the actor's skin to breathe. On top of that, it only took three hours or so to apply. So they came a long way just in that movie. Yeah. This was absolutely the biggest sci-fi franchise in the 60s and 70s before Star Wars and a revived Star Trek took it over. Um, you can see they even made some toys and stuff that were pretty cool. I had them all. Did you really? Yes, I did. I had a bunch of them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're awesome. You still have them? No, I wish I did. They would be worth a lot of money. Yeah, they would. Um, the first words spoken by the apes are when they are taking a photograph of some of the primitive humans, the camera girl says smile. So there's the smile. Uh, in the book, all apes are pretty much considered social equals. However, the movie sorted them into cast with the gorillas handling the grunt work and labor, the chimpanzees being the scientists and artists, and the orangutans, the whitest of the bunch, being the politicians. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly some race commentary going on in this film. <laughs> yeah. uh, not only did Roddy McDowell and Ken Hunter spend time at local <laughs> zoos studying the behavior and mannerisms of apes, they practiced speaking through the ape makeup in front of the mirror. Eventually, they taught the rest of the cast the best way to articulate their facial um, expressions and using of the uh, mask. The merchandising of this film featured about 300 licensed items, including toys, action figures, trading cards, jigsaw puzzles, stickers, coloring books, board games, and costumes. Lunchboxes. <laughs> Did you say lunchbox? I had one. That was, a, that was the good old days when it had the metal one, right? And then yep. the, the thermos in it, too? Yep. Yep. Exactly, yep. It was the biggest merchandising effort of all time, worth about $100 million. Wow. Big money back in the day. Big money. Big money. Yeah, and then George Lucas came along and said, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the production was constantly trying to find ways to cut costs, particularly in the extensive makeup process. One option was to put the actors in makeup and then transport them to the set. However, they could not drive cars for fear people would be shocked seeing a chimpanzee driving on the freeway and crashed. In the end, helicopters were used to transport the man-made actors to location. Kim Hunter requested that she be scheduled in makeup for no more than four days in a row because by the end of several days, the spirit glue used <clears> in the appliances burned her skin. She ended up sleeping with Vaseline on her face to avoid having a bright red rash each morning. Jeez. Tough okay, stuff. story time for Jimbo real quick. I was in a, a play for school. I think I was in eighth grade. Yeah, eighth grade. And I was in Cinderella, and I was the 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 king or whatever. You know, the ball guy had a bald cap on, and the guy that was playing, you know, the guy with the monocle, uh, the taller guy that was always around the king or whatever. Well, we had we had he had a, like a, a mustache and like a goatee thing, and and it wouldn't stay on. So <laughs> we were we, we they were trying to double side tape it, but he kept falling off. You know what I mean? So we actually took 
rubber cement, rubber glue. Oh, oh. And all I remember, man, is after the thing, he's in the bathroom and he's pulling it, dude, and his like skin's coming off of his face. Oh, oh. I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> I was like, that's that's rough. Torturous, torturous. I know, man. What we do for art, <laughs> but. Uh, when uh, inside the outdoor collective cage, Taylor writes the message, I can write in the dirt for Cornelius and Zero to see. Nova attempts to erase it as though she knew that showing his intelligence would get himself into trouble. This movie was so successful, it spawned an entire franchise, several sequels, and a few reboots decades later, and a live action TV show, as well as a Saturday morning cartoon, which aired in consecutive seasons 1974 and 1975 76. It also launched a series of action figures, which became the model and prototype for all the Star Wars merchant figures later in 77. Brad, did you watch the cartoon? Yes, I did. <laughs> Brad is just a seasoned ape here. <laughs> back, back in the 70s, they used to have like a, when the when the new season of cartoons would come up for, the, for, for that opening Saturday morning, they would have a preview the Friday night before. Oh, man. And, I, and it previewed on that. And I was like so stoked. I couldn't go to sleep. Couldn't that sleep. Night. <laughs> did they show? Did they show the next episode the next day, or was it the same? Yeah, the, yeah. The first they just showed like snippets of it, oh, like on clips the, on the preview. Yeah. So, yeah, wow. that was cool. The sets were inspired by the Flintstones' hometown of Bedrock. Uh, on one of the Blu-ray menu montages images, as well as some of the exterior packaging, actually gives away the ending. It actually shows the Statue of Liberty on the front of the DVD cases at some point. Uh, the Gosh. film's world television premiere broadcast occurred on CBS Friday night, September 14, 1973. This being the longest film in the series at 112 minutes resulted in a two and a half hour premiere. This left approximately 15 minutes of extra time, which was rounded out with a special behind the scenes documentary following the movie, showing the process of applying the ape makeup. Uh, Dr. Zayas frequently makes references to the lawgiver. In biblical and Hebrew teachings, Moses is often known as the lawgiver. Ironically, Charlton Heston, who plays Taylor in the movie, also played Moses in the Ten Commandments, as Kyle learned earlier on in this episode. Uh, Charlton Heston's Taylor transmits his final report on 3-23-26-73, according to the ship's chrono chronograph. This is three years after the lawgiver's lecture in the fifth film. That's pretty cool. Small world. <laughs> yep. Uh, in his voice log, Taylor refers to the emotional impact of deep space as giving feelings of extreme loneliness. When Star Trek actor William Shatner went into space in 2021 on the brief Blue Origin flight, he expressed the same feelings. The final scene when Taylor coming across the Statue of Liberty was suggested by Rod Sterling. Uh, according to the rumor, Pierre Boulay was greatly upset by this ending, but later warmed up to it, preferring this new ending over the very different ending he had written. The skeletal remains of the torch appears as set decoration in Junkyard uh, uh, Junkyard in Space. I guess that was another movie. Uh, the filming location of the classic final scene has been erroneously thought to be Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. But in fact, it is in Malibu, California. For diehard fans who want to visit the true location, it is a secluded cove on the far eastern end of Westward Beach between Zuma Beach and Point Doom. Ignore the wide curving beach by the car park and climb over the rocks to the east until you get to the quiet, often deserted little beach surrounded by cliffs. The Statue of Liberty was an optical effect skillfully achieved with a matte painting blended into a still existing rock structure. Uh, when Cornelius and Zira are, shown, are showing Taylor the map of the Forbidden Zone, you can see the coastlines on the map strongly resemble the current New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut shorelines. Once you take into consideration the 2,000 years of a post-nuclear apocalyptic world's dramatic landmass shift, 
Although the Hudson and East Rivers are are gone, you can clearly identify on the map Long Island, Long Island Sound, Long, uh, Lower New York Bay, Staten Island, and the Atlantic Ocean. I guess I really didn't pay that close attention to it because I now maybe that I know it's, that I have to go back map to see map, but yeah, uh, I just like hey, look, they got a cool map. They don't, they don't show it's it that long, really, to even right. notice that. Well, and you wonder how they got that map to begin with. If it's really, did Cornelius go out and map it since he was in the Forbidden Zone, or he must have, yeah, in the, in the archive. Uh, some viewers claim that the windows of the Icarus, when viewed from inside at the beginning, resemble the eyes of the Statue of Liberty. And when the Icarus is half submerged and tilting upwards, its shape resembles one of the points of the Liberty's crown. That's that might true. be a little far-fetched. I don't know. Uh, Pierre Boulay's original novel also featured twist ending, although slightly different from the film. The spacecraft crew does, in fact, land on another planet some 350 light years from Earth. The main character, Ulysses, which is Taylor in this film, escapes from the ape authorities with Nova, and they return to Earth only to find that it has undergone the same evolution uh, this concept was also used in 2001 uh, Tim Burton Apes film. It is therefore not a, that great a departure from the film to have uh, set the story on Earth the whole time. The novel adds a further twist, however. Ulysses and Taylor's story has been told in a flashback after he and Nova fled Earth as well and left a message in a bottle floating through space to warn off anyone else who might stumble across either planet. The bottle is discovered by an old married couple named Jen and Phyllis who are later revealed to be chimpanzees themselves. They dismissed this story, saying that no human could be intelligent enough to write it. <laughs> what? No. Okay, Red, have you watched? Have you read the book? No, I have not. No. Uh, I tried. I tried to find it once, and it was really hard to find back in the day. Yeah, it was probably might be out of print. Might uh, be yeah. subplot for the final passages of the film about Nova being pregnant were shot but discarded. All right. Here we go. Now, this has got some great actors who could have were considered for Taylor. Uh, so we'll start first. Sean Connery. Mm. Taylor? Yeah. Uh, you don't think so? No. His accent would get in the way of that, that point of the career. Steve McQueen. Yeah, I could see that. Yep. Well, that could be Paul good. Newman. Possibly, yeah. George Pappard. No. Come on, you can't you just see I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> uh Rod Taylor. I don't even know who that is. Burt Lancaster. Eh. James Garner. Ooh, Ooh, maybe. Do it. Yeah. Rock Hudson. Eh. Mm. He was a big star though. Yeah, he was. Uh Cliff Robertson. I don't know who that is. Stuart Whitman. Stuart Whitman. Uh and John Wayne. John. No, I, I don't see that. Very listen here, you chimpanzees. Listen here, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't you see like at the end standing behind an American flag or something with a gun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the special effects shot of the half-buried Statue of Liberty was achieved by seamlessly blending a map painting with the existing cliffs, which we talked about. The shot of looking down at Taylor was done from a 70-foot scaffold angled over a half-scale uh, papier-mâché model of the statue. Yeah, that's weird, ain't it? Yeah, Looks it is. good, though. Uh, the torch of the Statue of Liberty has its original flame in this film, which was replaced by a new one when the statue was renovated in 1986 for its centennial. I did not know it ever had been redone. Yeah, they it was closed down forever. 
Yeah. Uh, Brett and Jimbo, I'm checking here, actually, and it looks like the um the mass market paperback book is actually still available on Amazon Prime right now. Just $7.99. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'll send you guys a link to it in the group chat in here a little bit. All right. Okay. Uh, the twist ending feature at the, uh, the Statue of Liberty was introduced in Rod Sterling's initial drafts. This development was based on I Shot an Arrow into the Air, which was also a Twilight Zone screenplay, uh, based on by Madeline Ch- uh, Champion, in which the astronaut Corey, who believes that he is an, on an asteroid, discovers telephone poles and the sign reading Reno 97 miles and realizes that he has been on Earth all along. The ship crash landed in the Nevada desert. Hey, we're on the last page of notes, fellas. Awesome. Um, Landon's planning of the small American statue of the Forbidden Zone is ironic, as they already are in the former United States. Um, Explaining the effects used to transform Dodge into taxidermy exhibit, makeup designer John Chambers joked, we just didn't have the heart to send Jeff to a taxidermist. (laughs) Instead, special (laughs) contact lenses were made to cover Jeff Burton's eyes completely, giving a glazed appearance. (laughs) <laughs> a custom math piece which fits inside his uh, lips and cheeks and added to the stuffed illusion and the translucent body makeup completed the effect. Between takes, the actor was overheard to comment, I don't see how those stuffed animals can stand it. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Although some people have read latent racism into the story ideal, a.k.a. Kyle, as we talked about earlier, this is also envelope pushing in some ways uh, that there were two people of color who were major, at least high-profile characters in the cast. Linda Harrison is a person of color who played Nova, Taylor's mute girlfriend, and Jeff Burton was the uh, African-American player uh, who played, or African-American actor who played Dodge, who was in Taylor's crew running with him away from the ace, but eventually gets killed in the hunt. The sa- this sounds insignificant now that there were two people of color in the cast, but in 1968, it was a big deal in a huge studio, big-budget movie. Also, it paved the way uh, for the world of sci-fi to be much more integrated in the future. Yeah, anyway, look at like, the character of Dodge when he plays. He's a black man who became an astronaut. That alone itself is a profound statement, you know, right? Um, in that sense as well. So, yeah, and I would say I'm not saying this movie is a racist. I wasn't saying that in the initial initial, but I I understand why people can read into that for sure, and I believe it's intentional to a degree as well, you know, but not in like a specifically bad way. I don't think. Apparently, Landon has spoken after being captured, resulting in his lobotomy, as we talked about earlier. And Dr. Zaytis repeatedly poking around the veterinarian's lab. Zero is something's bothering him. He's been prying around the lab for the last two days. It's his search for humans with similar traits uh, leading to his instant suspicion of Taylor. The scene where Stewart's glass uh, suspended animation uh, compartment is cracked is much the same as in Rod Sterling's The Rip Van Winkle Caper, which, ironically, we're getting ready to cover the next time we record, I do believe. Uh, where a rock has fallen on the compartment of, oh, here it says, where a rock has fallen on the compartment of the fourth criminal while suspended, resulting in similar demise to Stewart. So I guess mm-hmm. a rock fell on it? Or something fell on top of it? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. You, you can't really tell because you just, they see her and she's dead. She's yeah. Cracked. Uh, the scene where oh, we are just uh, the filmmakers heavily debated the fact that the apes speak modern English, which Taylor understands. This should have been a clue that they were actually on Earth. In the original script, the apes were meant to have their own dialect, which Taylor learns while mute, so the audience understands the language, which would be presented as English when he does. So, uh, that was my final fact. So, we'll start with Brett. Brett, um, before you give us what you think of this movie, give us your little personal story about the original movies that you were going to tell well in 1973 
after the last movie was released, they had a thing at the drive-in where they played all five movies. It was a dusk to dawn thing. Oh man. And my mom took me and I stayed up for every single movie until the next morning. Oh dude, I bet that was awesome. Quite yeah. a trip. How, how old were you? Five, five or six. <laughs> you were probably mesmerized like I was. I was. I love the apes. That's and, awesome, dude. And then seventy four there uh was a car show in our town. You know how they used to have like Spider Man come? Well, yeah, yeah. Cornelius came to the car show. No. Did yes. And I got a signed picture from him. And I still have it somewhere. I'll have to find it. Was it actually Roddy McDowell? No, it wasn't. It was just somebody, but it was the exact makeup. Oh, dude. Yeah. yeah you have to do that and you can post it on our uh, Facebook page. I'll have to awesome. find it. I, I, my, my ex wife might have it in her, all her pictures, but, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I still have that. So are, you, so are you saying Planet of the Apes or The Apes is probably one of your favorite movies of all time? Probably one of my favorite. Yeah, for sure. Nice. All right, we'll start with Brett before Kyle gives us his millennial take. Brett, what do you think of the movie? Although we probably already know. <laughs> I, I love this. I love all the, at least the first five, you know, the original ones. I'm a big fan of all of them, so... So, uh, as you and Carl do, how many monkey paws would you give this one? <laughs> um, I'm going to give it nine monkey paws. Nine out of ten? Nine yeah. Kyle? Sure. Yeah, I think this movie's uh, pretty excellent. We're able to watch for any kind of, like, film story or any kind of film buff. Like, definitely, like, I mean, it's probably around the, I don't know, uh, eight out of ten range. Like, right in there, right? Sits there solidly. I wouldn't want to give it a seven. I wouldn't want to give it a nine. So I think eight out of ten or four out of five, if you want to put it that way. And I think this movie is really interesting and surprisingly dense and i can see why it got so many sequels i can see why it appealed to children of all ages at the time and why it became such a phenomenon it is and i think the um reboot's pretty excellent too um i haven't gone back to the uh, mark Wahlberg in, in a long time but uh, i certainly love the Andy circus trilogy they made i think that's one of the best trilogies uh made in the past uh 20 years honestly and uh pretty great stuff there and this film itself holds up surprisingly well in many respects and there's a lot of dig into you know i i mentioned the character of dr zayas um i love charles heston's character uh, and, and everything else going on here like there's it's a cool movie it really goes for it in a way that many films in the 60s just didn't and so i really appreciate it overall i think it was a, a pretty cool movie you know just, probably, the, just the makeup alone from <clears throat> you know for special effects yeah especially just yeah the special effects of the time is uh amazing work being done and frankly, kind of stuff where it's like, really hasn't been taught that much since in the past, you know, 50 years, you know, to a real degree as well. Because, like, you know, uh, many films would, would you know, strive to be as good as this movie did in terms of makeup artistry, you know, but it's such a huge challenge. So um, incredible work by everyone involved in that whole production. You know, really great stuff. So, um, yeah, overall, I think this is a pretty excellent film. Jimbo, how do you feel about it? Man. I'm with Brett, man. I'm going to have to give it at least a 9 out of 10. The only reason I don't give it a 10 is because I didn't want to see Charlton Heston's buttocks. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I had, to, I had to duck the point for that. But, um, yeah, the special effects alone, um, especially at that time, there was probably nothing like it. Um, that's probably what mesmerized Brett so much. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, you can go back to The Wizard of Oz and some of those other ones, but something that drew me into it was was the story, too, because I, I thought it was really – cool how they took how we normally perceive like men 
like going through, let's say, the jungle and just capturing apes or capturing any animals and all that. But here you have the apes capturing the humans. So basically everything is just reversed. It's almost return. like it's almost like a big twilight zone, you know what I mean, where everything is opposite. Exactly. Uh, you yeah. got you got animals with guns riding horses. Um, you know what I mean? They're 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 like, oh well, he's a human, he can't talk, you know what I mean? But yeah, how, how long who's that lady that spent all that time with the apes that they communicate, you know, and they can actually communicate back and forth and all that? Um, so I, I it had me from the beginning all the way to the end. Um, I remember watching these when I was a kid. Now I don't remember if they were on VHS, DVD, regular TV because we used to have like TV shows like Sunday afternoons for like three, like from noon to six, there would be three movies on. Um, they used to show a couple of back to back. Um, I don't know which one it is, Brett, but I tried to tell Kyle earlier, there's one, and I think it's either Cornelius or Zira, I think, that gets shot on like a USS aircraft carrier or something, remember? Yeah, that's the third one. Yeah. Third one, so, yeah. Okay, it's got to get crazy than technology-wise. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, because some of them go back in the past. It, like, it, it, it gets interesting. Uh, gets I know it's lot. probably... You may have never seen them all, but it's been a long time since I've actually sat and watched them all like we're doing and actually dive yeah, into it. But yeah. yeah, I love it, Brett. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, I can't wait to do the rest of these movies. I'm not That's a big awesome. fan of the Mark Wahlberg one, which we can bash that one all we want when we get to it, Brett. I can't yeah, wait. I plan on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he said he's planning on it. But uh, maybe I'll have a newfound perspective on it once I watch all these other ones. We'll, we'll see. So um yeah, we're gonna be releasing uh or we're gonna be releasing this sometime, I don't know, once a month or something, once we can actually figure a schedule. But the next one we will be covering is I believe it is uh the second movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So uh we are going to simultaneously release this on our um our podcast site player, whatever feed, thank you. And uh Brett's gonna release on the Evil Never Dies podcast. So Thanks for all the Evil Never Dies uh, listeners uh, that may have tuned in or maybe any of our fans that went over and listened to Brett um, on his. They do a really good job. I've, I've learned some stuff, especially about uh, the rock music industry, um, because they would just start talking. I'm like, guys, I don't even know who these people are. And, and you're talking about, well, this bass player left and this. I said, dude, I don't even know who they are. So you got I told yeah. them I had to slow down. I said, I Going can't keep up. I said, I can't keep up. Uh, but they're good people, man. They're good people. Uh, actually, I did get to go meet Brett last year. Uh, last right, be- right. Actually, uh, WrestleMania weekend, I went down there. We had some barbecue, uh, some good times. So it was a great yep. time. I wish I had longer time to sit down there and spend with him. So um, we're talking about maybe doing something towards the end of this year with uh, the Evil Never Dies. So stay tuned. Uh, there might be some breaking news one day. Uh, but that's still in the very, Ta-da! very early, early stages of, early stages of, of, of discussion. You were talking uh, too early about it. Right to, actually, it's just me and Brett talking. We haven't even brought Carl uh, or Kyle in on it yet. I may have dropped a little hint at Kyle. So it's it's going to have to have all the stars aligned and everything for it to work. But I think it could be fun and memorable. So, um, Brett, you got anything else you'd like to say? Uh, just thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. And, uh, no problem. Can't Pleasure having you. Yeah. Kyle? Um, I would say that's a wrap, but I have a little mute filter on it where actually it won't give me the clapper. So I think you got to hit the clapper on this one. Otherwise, oh, we won't I, got it right here. I got it All right here. All right, Jimbo, you take it from me. All okay. right. Well, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Awesome. Thank you, Jimbo.